Totally Football Show. Today, whoops a betis. England term predictions upside down, Sergio Ramos too, with massive win in Spain. We look back on a night of civil pride when we made Spain our civil servants with Gareth's feet of civil engineering. Then it's forward to the weekend. So many matches to enjoy, so many top derbies too. And of course that early game at Stamford Bridge. What will Moose News be if his crew lose v the Blues? All that and more in this Totally Football Show. Well, there's only one place we can start this week. I think Spain will win 3 1. 2 0 Spain. Inglaterra! Spanish for England is also that the midfield three for Spain look as if they'll be Busquets, Thiago and Saul uh, up against Harry Winks, Ross Barkley and Eric Dyer. Lenny White shirts forward, Barkley. That's another one for Sterling. No offside. It's a Monday night masterclass for Gareth Southgate. Yep. Monday's pod aged well. In this edition of the Totally Football Show, listener, we have for you half man, half spreadsheet. It's Optus Duncan Alexander. Hi, James. Tom Williams, author of Do You Speak Football? Hello, James. Do you speak Welsh this week, Tom? Uh, a little bit of Welsh. Excellent. Do you want me to speak some Welsh? No, that's fine. Okay, well, go on, can you? Good. Give us a phrase. Borodar. Uh-huh. That means good morning. All right. Hey, excellent. Excellent. And horada to MC Emma Saunders. Hello, James. Hi. Reporter for Five Live and BBC London and voice of football from Moscow to Vicarage Road. Good to be here. Hey, everybody. We heard some predictions there. How much of a surprise for you was England, Spain? Perhaps England's mightiest showing since that 5-1 in Berlin. Three goals, four if you count uh, Eric Dyer going in on Sergio Ramos. And all in all, just an unbelievable night. Duncan? Yeah, I mean, it would have taken a brave man to predict that scoreline and, and there weren't any brave men around on Monday until the game kicked off. Um, I thought Eric Dyer's tackle was a bit like a kind of medieval soldier charging a castle to get things underway. You know, often a battle would, would not really start until someone sort of committed and, and once that happened, for the next sort of 20 minutes, England were, were brilliant. All right, that was, you think, that the spark that lit the flame? Was yeah, it? I think that tackle will echo down the ages. Yeah, it certainly set the tone. Speaking of it being medieval, we've seen there's been a tapestry made by somebody, yes, online of of that night. Yeah, no one saw that coming. Anyone that said they did is a liar. Uh, I think the players themselves, even at halfTime, were thinking, hang on a minute, we're 3-0 up. What's yeah. going on? When it was the first time Spain had ever conceded three goals yeah. at home in Ooh. the first half. Give us some more stats for context, Duncan. It was the youngest England starting eleven for 59 years. Um, it was the first time Spain had conceded three goals in a competitive home match. Um, and But the, it, it was also a strange game because England's last shot of the match was Raheem Sterling's second goal. So they, they literally didn't have another shot after the whatever the 38th minute yeah well there's a tweet here from somebody who didn't get the memo about the glass being half full this is Daniel why do England fade so dramatically in the second half of matches Spain game saw uh, the team withdraw to the 25 yard line much as in the World Cup semi Tom your objective on this what's your feeling yeah that strikes me as nitpicking um, I mean if you go 3-0 up in a game like that against the, a team of that quality you're inevitably going to find yourselves under the cosh Um you know, when, when they're trying to get back into the game. I mean, perhaps, you know, England would have liked to see a little bit more on the counter-attack, but 
I mean, I, I wasn't all that impressed by Spain's response. I mean, and, yeah. you know, there was a lot of lumping aimless balls into the box and we know that their their style has progressed in, in, in recent times under Lopetegui and now under Luis Enrique and that they're becoming a bit more of a direct team. But I, they didn't feel to me like a team with a, a huge amount of identity. And, and I think it kind of played into England's hands the way they tried to get back into the game. OK, they scored a couple of goals, but it was a lot of just aimless crosses that were being headed away. Yeah, I think this is where our old friend expected goals comes in quite handy. Because if you look at the just the sheer number of shots, Spain had 23 shots, England had five, mm-hmm. which is a big discrepancy. But XG, England 1.66, Spain 1.93, so pretty close. Basically, England created really good chances, but few of them. Right. Spain had loads. Quality, not quantity. Exactly. Mm. I see. That that seems to be the pattern emerging generally across international football as well. There was a stat that came out of the technical report from the World Cup this week, and Spain during that competition had the most average ball possession per game at 69%. But of course, they failed to make it past the round of 16, whilst mm. France ranked 19th in overall possession really? in the tournament. Yeah, so it's just echoing exactly what you said there. It's more about how clinical you are, how efficient you are, rather than how much possession you have in a game. Because, yeah, in that second half, especially, Spain completely dominated in terms of possession, didn't they? But they yeah, just I mean, weren't efficient. It's interesting for England as well, because often, so often for England, they're at home to a smaller team and they have to break down a packed defence. But we've got the sort of players that really excel when they're on the counter-attack. You right. saw Sterling, you saw Rashford, and Kane is becoming increasingly very adept at sort of playing his players in. Um, so this sort of game really suited England. Do you know what it reminded me of, actually? Leicester winning the title, going up against big Premier League sides, maybe more fancied sides, and effectively defending deep and hitting extremely well on the break. Just in terms of the joy, that First half, I mean, it was, you've seen a lot of England, Emma, but that was an extraordinarily thrilling performance. Yeah, and I think we should go back to the fact it was such a young squad because in the end, it was the likes of Harry Winks that played such a huge part in that performance. The average age, I think, was 23, wasn't it? And I think a lot of that it comes down to being young and being fearless and just going into games like that and throwing everything at it because these opportunities, they don't come thick and fast so much for the younger players. So they're just really enjoying putting on an England shirt. That's true as well. And obviously you could have lowered the average age by swapping Trippier for Alexander-Arnold. Yeah. But also we've got another two, maybe even three generations of English players coming through. You know, this is a good generation, but it's arguable the next two or three generations are even better. So, you know, it is looking quite good. Wow. And the quality of the goals as well. Yeah. I mean, in, in every goal there was a moment, a pass or there was a touch that opened up the space. I mean, you think about you know, the build-up to the first goal, which was one of the best goals England have ever scored. The pass from Rashford through to Sterling. Uh, and then you've got Kane setting up Rashford for the second goal and then the build-up to the third goal with a pass over the top from Barkley the mm. volley from Kane Sterling sweeping it in and it was a very clinical dismantling mm. of the Spanish defence and I think it showed how England can play particularly when they're away from home right. against big opponents and I think this could this is a way in which the Nations League could be really useful for England's development because we know that they are a good qualifying team they've only not qualified for one big tournament since 1994 but generally because of their seeding, they're not playing the big teams. The right. first time they're playing the big teams in matches that matter are in the knockout phases of major tournaments when they always get shown up. Whereas now they're getting the opportunity to play against the top teams and figure out how to, you know, how to come up against them. And we know they can dominate smaller teams and, and find a way to pick their way through packed defenses. And now we can see what they can do against stronger teams who, you know, who like to be on the ball. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, encouraging. Okay. Would you have that one of the best yeah. goals England's ever scored? Yeah. That first one. Well, I've only probably seen. 
15% of them. But, uh... <laughs> that first goal um, was part of a 17-part move that involved all 11 of England's Fair players. Enough. And I think Fair the key enough. thing there is all players, because Pickford was really good with his passing and mm. you know vindicated Southgate's decision to, to go with him as his mm. main goalkeeper. Um, I mean, I tweeted at half-time that Pickford had the second-highest pass completion rate of any England player in the first half, whereas De Gea was the worst of, of any Spanish player. And obviously a lot of people said goalkeepers are there to, to make saves, not, not make passes. But increasingly, that isn't the case. You know, passing is as each season goes past is a key part of, of goalkeeping yeah. and, and, and Pickford played a key role in two of the goals the first goal I mean the, the the pass that springs England out of their own box into Spain's half comes from Pickford um, and then the second goal comes from a big Pickford punt but again he's not just hoofing it aimlessly downfield he's aiming for Harry Kane Kane manages to bring the ball down and, and, and play in Sterling He very nearly played a part in a Spain goal as well of course uh, Jordan Pickford with that <laughs> Yeah, mark, a bit lucky to get away with that, that Alisson-esque uh, mm. Cruyff-Turner mm. attempt but, yeah. but, but anyway uh, a, a resounding win in Spain a nation that had just beaten Croatia 6-0, a nation who hadn't conceded three to England before half-time since when, Duncan? Since the neutron was discovered. Is that right? Is how I like to measure all events in football. <laughs> For anyone who's not aware of where that sits on the timescale most people employ, what, what, what date would you get? Uh, 1932 was really? the neutron. 1931 was the, the last time England did it. And that was in a home game, obviously. Right. It's been a long old way, hasn't it? Dukla Prague away kit says after that first half performance on Monday, are we in danger of actually looking forward to international breaks? Well, yeah, maybe, because it's such an interesting situation for England now. I, I found myself reading a Nations League permutations article. Firstly, I read it and thought, wow, someone's gone to the extent that they've made time to write this. And hang on, I'm reading it and I'm interested. What did you learn, Emma? Basically, England need to follow this up now. Don't, yeah. It was a brilliant result. You know, we can bask in it, we can bathe in it. It's it's great, but it's what they do next. Yeah, does it mean any more than that 5-1, which ultimately proved a full storm? No? And to, just to kind of, you know, permutate you here, uh, England need two things to happen to win the group and reach the finals. They need Croatia to take something from Spain, who are still ahead of them, and then they need, England need to beat Croatia three days later at Wembley, and then they'd finish top. Having said that, they could... England still be relegated, mm. so everything to play for. Uh, a little bit of love for Raheem Sterling, subject to so much opprobrium, or is it opprobrium? Which way around is it, Tom? Opprobrium. Opprobrium. Half, I think the R comes first, yeah. Right. Yeah, it does. His first goals internationally for three years and 27 games. Uh, uh, Emma, uh, Sam Kenny pointing out via Twitter that people who've scored goals or number of goals scored for England by age 23... Lineker, Sheringham, Ian Wright and Beardsley, none. Beckham had one. Shearer, Fowler and Keegan had two. John Barnes had three. Raheem Sterling, four. Because he's got his chance a bit earlier maybe than those guys did. I think that's what people forget with Raheem Sterling. He's 23. Give the guy a chance. So, admittedly, he's had this drought for a couple of years. But when you look at the greater scheme of things and how long people play international football for, he's still got you know a, probably a good tournament or two ahead of him easily. Um so I'm 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 pleased for him. I feel like we saw the Raheem Sterling that we see in the Premier League week in, week out on an international stage. And hopefully now that he's finally ignited that international form, it's something that we see in the next break. Speaking of breaks, we're gonna take one now, listener. Tom, any other Nations League news we should be talking about after that? Big Wales win. All right. Of then. course. That's up next. And Gibraltar. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Phil says, does the panel agree that the Nations League will eventually, bracket soon, question mark, usurp Euros in importance? 
It's the only international competition where there aren't frequent mismatches. Games have been terrific, better than the World Cup even. Whoa there, Nelly. Although Martin Tyler was uh, saying that England's performance was better than anything in the World Cup, which is a, a view. What, what do you think? I th- Nations League, it's... it's yeah, it's, it's the Nations sensation. League has been a huge success. I think that the only thing that counts against it, I mean, and no one is really suggesting it's, it's ever going to replace the Euro, but while it's great seeing teams of a roughly similar level play against each other, if you're one of the smaller nations and you only ever played in the Nations League, you wouldn't ever get any glamour ties. So, well, you would when you qualify for the, the Euros. Ah, but if the Euros has been scrapped, oh, is this what is this what yeah, our sorry, commentary I didn't think is? That's true, yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, look, I mean, I think the Nations League has been a triumph because you're getting competitive matches between teams who are on the same level, um, and there have been some brilliant games. Sorry, yeah, Tom, I really didn't think that through. You mm. were, li- I literally made the point. You were, yeah. Anyway, Gibraltar won again. That's the big story here, everybody. Gibraltar won again. Last time we mentioned they just had their first win in 23 competitive matches. I believe they'd lost all the previous 22. I think that's mm. right. But anyway, they went to Armenia. They took on uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan and company and defeated them, I think, 1-0. Then on Tuesday, they did Liechtenstein. This time, they scored two goals, which is the first time they've ever done that in any competitive game. Emma, you like a permutation. They're now second in the group. Wow. Second. Three points behind Macedonia. So if they can get something when they host Armenia in November and then in the final game of the group, win away at Macedonia, they'll be in the Euros. Gibraltar. Did Gibraltar have their own national anthem, do we know? Because Liechtenstein famously used the same tune as the British national anthem. When they beat Armenia in Armenia, it was a performance fired up by the fact that the Armenians had played, I believe, the Liechtenstein national anthem instead of the Gibraltar one, whatever that might be. Mm. Anyway, look, we're having a conversation about the success of Gibraltar. This is why the Nations League is so brilliant. That's so true. Here's another reason, Tom. France, Germany. Did you see that one? Bits of it, yes. It was the same time, was it? As, it was the same time as uh, the course. big Ireland-Wales game. All right, um, well, just so you know, Germany took the lead and looked like shredding expectations in that match as well. But then Griezmann equalised with an astonishingly good header. Lovely header, yeah. 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 And then from the penalty spot, and that means that Germany are once, well, still heading for the relegation. Two points behind the Netherlands, who they'll be meeting in a few weeks in Germany. The Netherlands have a game in hand, so... Looking grim for Yogi Love and company. Six defeats in ten games since March. To put that into perspective, put that into perspective. I can put that into perspective. It's the first time they've ever lost six times in a calendar year. And then, and our friend Daniel Story had a good tweet as well, What's which that? was that Gibraltar had more competitive wins this week than Germany had all year. Gibraltar. Are you hearing that, Germans? Gibraltar. Right, Tom. Let's talk about Wales. That's they had a one 0 win in Dublin. More yes, they did. This time, but... So they, um, I went to both the Wales's matches over oh, the good. international break. They lost four uh, one against Spain mm. uh, last week, and then won in Ireland in a really dreadful game in Dublin, that was lit up by a free kick from Harry Wilson uh, just before the hour, who of course scored that fantastic free kick when Derby knocked Manchester United out of the Carabao Cup, uh, and that's Wales top of uh, UEFA Nations League group. B4 or something. Mm. And if they beat Denmark in their last fixture, they'll be promoted to UEFA Nations League A. Superb. Exciting times. How big was it for Wales to do this without 
the big names without Ramsey, without mm. Bale. It was the first time that they played a competitive match without both Bale and Ramsey. Or, since or Ramsey, or both? Without both of them, uh-huh. since Ramsey made his international debut in 2008. Really? Which, which I suppose, shows the extent to which they've been dependent on them. Mm. Um, and, and Ryan Giggs, as he has done throughout his, his fledgling Wales career so far, made some very bold choices. Um, he's picked a lot of young players, did the same thing again in Dublin. 18-year-old midfielder Matt Smith, who was on loan at FC Twente from Man City, came in central midfield. Tyler Roberts, 19-year-old lead striker up front. Um, And I'd say Wales were probably the better team in the sense that they had more of the ball, but there were very, very few chances. Um, And the one moment of quality in the the game came from a Welsh player. Um, But yeah, I think think psychologically, quite a big hurdle to have overcome to have won that game without Bale and Ramsey. And, you know, Ireland were the team that prevented them from qualifying for the last World Cup. So, you know, a measure of revenge in the two Nations League games there. Yeah, uh, which is more important than we now established. Then, well, think, exactly. Yeah. Um, Ireland, meanwhile, crashing towards UEFA Nations League C and have now gone 12 months without winning a competitive game. Yikes. Uh, and look, look pretty awful, right. uh, in, in truth. OK, Northern Ireland are in trouble too. They lost their third Nations League game, 2-0 to Bosnia, a brace from Edin Dzeko. Northern Ireland haven't won in seven and they've only scored two goals in that run. Any other Nations League games we need to be talking about here? Duncan? Emma? No? Listener? All right then, next up, the Premier League. He lines up to hit it and yes! It's deflected for a corner! That's over 12 corners! Yes! (coughs) No time to take it though! It's finished nil-nil! What a result! Sorry, our fault. You see, with same-game multi-bets from Paddy Power, you can combine multiple selections from one match into one bet, and you'll get money back as a free bet if one leg of your four-fold same-game multi-bet lets you down. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match four-fold same-game multi-bets on UK and top European leagues. Max free bet £10 per customer per day. Minimum odds. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18plusbgambleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Hey, everybody. This is exciting. We've just had a look at the Premier League table. You know what we've discovered? There's only three teams tied on top. Uh, Manchester City, Chelsea and Liverpool. What do you make of that, Emma? Yeah, Chelsea, out of those three teams, are the ones that people aren't talking about so much, are they? I think that's because Man City and Man City, this is what we expected. Mm. Liverpool... um, after last the last few seasons of kind of, this has been brewing, hasn't it? So finally, people are saying, "Is this Liverpool's year?" And, and the way they started, um, but yeah, Chelsea have just kind of slipped under the radar slightly. And I think it's the style that they've been gathering their points in. Perhaps their wins haven't been quite as impressive, emphatic. I don't know. Right. They haven't they haven't drawn the attention as much. I'm not sure. Well, they're certainly going to be drawing attention, or will have the opportunity to do so this Saturday lunchtime when they kick off the Premier League weekend with a clash with Man United at Stamford Bridge. Moo returning to Chelsea. Same for Lukaku and Juan Mata, for what it's worth. Gautam Kahadkar says, Can Jose's United do to Sarri's Chelsea? What Benitez Liverpool did to Scolari's Chelsea in 2008 hmm? and derail their early season form? Are there chinks in Chelsea's armour? Tom... Um, I mean, you know, we've seen that that Chelsea can be can be stopped. I mean, I think West Ham were the first team this season who managed to shut them down um, 
in that nil-nil draw at the London Stadium. And, and, and Chelsea, while their form's been impressive, I think the last the last few weeks they've, they've played more difficult matches than the game against Liverpool, of course, and, and they've not been firing as they were previously. Um, I mean, the, the one thing you would say about Mourinho is that he is very good at setting his team up tactically for these sorts of matches. And it's been one of the few constants throughout his United tenure that generally speaking that they've turned up in matches like this and I mean okay they, they've already they've already lost heavily at home to Tottenham but funnily enough that was one of their most impressive performances of the season um, certainly the first half tactically I thought they did a very good job of, of shutting Tottenham down um, but Mourinho really needs it I mean mm. he, he really needs to produce a performance because it, it feels very much like that Mourinho season uh, to use the, uh, the, the malicious uh, name that it was given to that season by Antonio Conte oh, right. that we are never more than one match away from crisis returning and I, I mean as impressive as that comeback against Newcastle was it was against Newcastle it was against Newcastle right and um, their last trip to London of course at West Ham did not go well for them hmm. no this is the 199th game since Alex Ferguson retired in the Premier League and they do have some problems still um, I think what they need to be aware of here is Chelsea are the widest team in the Premier League by which I mean that on average they're kind of passing network if you like is the widest of any team you think the the reverse of that Burnley and Watford are the narrowest which kind of sort of fits in with what you might think Um, and United do tend to sort of set up fairly narrowly um, particularly midfield so I think Chelsea could get some some joy down the flanks definitely I see what are they going to do about Eden Hazard can they do anything about Eden Hazard strangely this week Eden Hazard came out and said that he would be happy to work under Mourinho again yeah he did didn't he which given what happens in 2015-16 seems strange because his form, for whatever reason, fell off a cliff. He says it's because they came back late from, from the summer holidays mm. and didn't really get going. But, you know, Mourinho was there till December, so they had some time to to pick up pace. Um, you know, he's playing, obviously, the, probably the best football of his career this season. Um, and I think he is going to relish the chance to, um, to, you know, to dominate Manchester United. We have seen glimpses from United of of something coming together. It's not always followed up with in, in subsequent weeks. But, for example, when they we turned up it on your patch, Emma, that uh, last-minute screamer from Matic to beat Watford, what do, what do you think of United? Are they, do they have any chance at Chelsea? I think there, I do think there is a chance, but I, I just think Chelsea will be too good for them, mainly for the reasons that we've listed already. Although that Hazard comment... It's interesting, isn't it? It's interestingly timed. Do you think maybe he was just um, asked about and he just thought, oh, yeah. just be polite? He seems to have done that recently, though. He just seems to open his mouth in interviews. I can't imagine that the um, Chelsea press officers enjoy working with him too much in that respect. Um, I just think Ross Barkley as well. He's had yeah. such a good international break. He he does seem to have identified himself as that creative missing link that England had. And if he can bring that week in, week out domestically to Chelsea, and it seems like Sarri um, really, really believes in him. I, I just think Chelsea are going to have too much in this one. Also, when you think of you know the attacking potential, Tom, of Chelsea against whoever's won the, the, the centre-back lottery at, at Man United this week. Who, who, who will that be, do you think? Who knows? I mean, knows? I, I wonder whether we might see Ander Herrera tasked with the job of following Aiden Hazard everywhere he goes on the he pitch, did. which is something that Mourinho has done with him before. Yeah, he um, did that a couple of seasons ago yeah. at Old Trafford and, and did a brilliant job. Hazard didn't get a touch in the opposition box in that match. So, yeah, he's got form for it. And Mourinho is one manager who is not above just giving someone a really blatant man-marking job. You get hear a lot of, oh, you know, you can't man-mark players like that. You know, you've got to, it's, it's got to be about the way that the team sets up and everything. Whereas Mourinho, if he sees a very dangerous player, he will put someone on him right. uh, and just sort of basically instruct him to follow him wherever he goes. Well, of course, amongst the Mourinho's many concerns heading into this uh, 
Emma is the fact that he might not actually be allowed to show up. Uh, yes. Well, the manhunt continues, oh. doesn't it? He's been charged for this um, offensive language that he was meant to... He quite courteously said it all in Portuguese. But oh, yeah. saying that, I think the match was on telly, wasn't it? So there's mm. like bound to be a global audience watching. Um, anyway, the FA have deemed his language offensive and charged him. He has until 6 o'clock Friday evening to respond. And then after that, I think the panel of three would then have to have their meeting to decide what happens next. Oh, so we won't know until so literally the re- morning of the Realistically, game. I don't think if there was a ban, because it's an early kickoff as well, the, yeah. him, the chance of him missing that game are very slim. Um, so it's more likely, I think it's the Everton, isn't it, after that, that he would miss. If he does get banned, obviously Stamford Bridge is where he hid in a basket once during a, a UEFA ban when he was Chelsea manager. So maybe that basket still exists in the museum or something. You'd think he'd have learned about swearing in Portuguese, given that it's got him in trouble before, and that, it, that swearing in a foreign language is not like a kind of a free pass to just say anything you like. Part of me does think... Perhaps he's been punished a little bit too harshly. There's others that swear and have got away with it. I don't know if you saw recently when Neil Warnock said, well done, Harry, you beep, and got caught True, on TV. But, but that was just sort of like common or garden touchline shouting. Mourinho very deliberately waited until a television camera had been put right in front of his face and then swore at the camera. It was sort of like, you know, when, remember when Wayne Rooney shouted into yeah. the camera yeah, at, at West Ham? Loath as I am to sort of say Manchester United do get unfairly treated generally, so I don't think that's necessarily true. But they do seem to always—they're uh, always the team that get these sort of bans. You know, like Rooney won't be in a classic. Well, well, maybe he certainly does, but then his past record might weigh on their on their considerations. Anyway, maybe, maybe their staff should stop swearing at television cameras, and it won't happen anymore. Tom, this is true. Just as a suggestion, is this going to be a good ga- game, Tom? Are you looking forward to it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um... I think, I mean, it, it feels like it's been a very long international break. And so it feels like a long time since any of us have watched any Premier League football. And with the whole Mourinho narrative going back to Chelsea and everything. Well, Interesting. Also, his first ever game in England was a home match against Manchester United. Mm. Was it? Mm. Mm. So, you know, it's a long shot, but this could be his last ever game. <gasps> wow, that Book would be extraordinary. Dun, dun, dun. It won't be, clearly. It won't be. <laughs> Surely won't be. Anyway, then he's got, uh, if he's still there, he's got Juve turning up at Old Trafford on Tuesday in that Champions League, which we'll talk about that on in Monday's show. Uh, the other two teams at the top of the table are, of course, Liverpool and Man City. They face easier-looking fixtures. Uh, Liverpool will be at Huddersfield later on Saturday, mid-afternoon, Man City host Burnley, who held them to a 1-1 draw at Turf Moor when they last faced each other. City, though, have had a very winning record at the Etihad against the Clarets. Uh, they put nine goals past them in the last three games. This fixture reminds me of one of my favourite moments of the 2014-15 season when uh, they played this fixture in the Christmas period. Uh-huh. Um, and Sean Dyche, being a very Sean Dyche, um, named not only the same team as he had done two days earlier, but didn't make a single substitution. Uh, amid the, a run of 13 games, we made one change to the starting lineup. Right. Um, unsurprisingly, perhaps Burnley were then relegated. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, they look reasonably safe from uh, such a fate this time around, Burnley coming in in 12th place after a, a fine run of results. Kevin De Bruyne is training again. He may be on the bench, they say. That's exciting. Uh, Liverpool, as I mentioned, are away at Huddersfield, which is a very intriguing match. A, because Huddersfield are intriguing, let's be frank. And B, because it's the it's the clash of Klopp and, and Wagner. Uh, Wagner, who was Klopp's best man, who will be his best man in this match uh, Tom. Well, 
I mean, it might not be some of the usual suspects because half of them came back from the international break with injuries. I think right. Virgil van Dijk, Naby Keita, Mo Salah and Sadio Mane. Um, and this is on the back of a period when Liverpool haven't really had things their own way. I mean, won their first seven games this season, but have now gone four without a win. Big came games, though. Man City, Chelsea... Big games. I mean, true, true. And they've, they've not been playing badly, but that, that early season momentum has, has dissipated somewhat. Very true. Is this exactly the kind of fixture that you'd like, though, after such a run? They won both clashes with Huddersfield 3-0 last season. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of the big teams are all that worried about facing Huddersfield. I mean, I thought Huddersfield were a lot better um, last time out against Burnley. I mean, they, they sort of dominated possession, they had most of the play, and, you know, they looked like a decent football team. But again, we say this every time we talk about Huddersfield, but they just don't score goals, and no. you can't hope to do anything if you don't score goals. Agree with all that, actually, Tom, but I think one thing we should point out is that Klopp's got a particular weakness of playing away against teams in the relegation zone. Liverpool have lost five of their last nine um, away from home against teams in the bottom three and won none of the last six. So, if there's potential for a you know banana skin, I think this is possibly it. Although obviously Huddersfield would need to score, which again mm. is probably not in the realms of realism. But Huddersfield's survival last season came down to them pulling it out the bag against a few of the big sides every so often, and so far they haven't done that yet. It just makes you wonder. Got a funny feeling. Does, about does this. this have banana skin written on it? Are Huddersfield going to miraculously get something out of this one? There's so much narrative in this fixture. There's also half-brothers, Juan Alderman and Van Lepara, going up against each other, potentially. Wow. Excellent. Let's have some more Premier League after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. What's happening this weekend in Europe, Duncan? Do you know? Many games of football. That's so true. Amongst them... Big game at the top of the Liga where Barcelona, who are one point behind Sevilla, are facing Sevilla. Eh? Uh, in Italy, you've got your Milan derby. Some other exciting clashes like Parma-Lazio. Parma are uh, doing surprisingly well with Bobby English and uh, Jovinho. You can hear more of that kind of thing on our special sister show, Golazzo. Are we talking about uh, Sex Sugar and Antonio Cassano? Pretty much in that order. I think. France. Oh, it's a big weekend in France, isn't it, Tom? Mm. Why is that again? Thierry Henry will take charge of his first game as coach when Monaco go to Strasbourg. What's your gut instinct? Is he going to be big or a blowout? I really don't know. I don't know because, I mean, people who have worked alongside him, whether it was when he was at Arsenal or, or at Belgium, or even you know people who... Um, were on the same coaching course as him when he was at the, the Welsh FA, say that he was a fantastic coach and prepares his, his sessions extremely well. And he is someone who has always had um, huge like passion for, for football and, and, and a great knowledge of, of the game. Um, but at the same time, we're very used to great players not becoming great coaches. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it's fascinating. It will be fascinating to see what sort of coach he is. I mean, I guess the expectation is that he will want to play attractive football because that's the sort of player he was and he, he worked under coaches who played that kind of football. In his introductory press conference yesterday, he cited... Um, the great Nantes team of the 1980s and the 1990s, the Jeux la Nantes, sort of short passes and very quick, aggressive attacking football. Obviously, he spoke about playing under Arsene Wenger, Pep Guardiola, um, but we don't know. Is he going to be back three, back four? Is he going to press? Is he going to be possession-based? 
You know, all these things we will find out. Probably not in this one fixture against Strasbourg, but mm. some indication at least. What do you think? Is, will it be tracksuit? Will it be blazer? Well, interestingly, a, a he seemed to go for half, half and half at his press conference. I don't know really? whether anyone else saw his get up. No, I didn't see it. Was it was basically like shirt and tie <laughs> and suit jacket on top. Yes. And then basically tracksuit bottoms and trainers like underneath. Is that a thing in France? I mean, apparently, a lot of people were saying, oh, yeah, like Henri's really smashed it here. It felt a bit Emperor's New Clothes to me, but, you know, what what do I know? Well, I don't think an Emperor would wear that, to be fair. I think um, specifically that analogy, there's no clothes. Yeah, but also, like, it's someone thinking they look good. Ah, yes. But but I've been literal. Yeah, stretching it a little bit, but... But, yeah, yeah, no, I think that that is a thing, so... Fair play to him. All yeah. right, let's have. I recommend looking up the photographs because it's it's a striking, striking look. Um, right, but a tricky start for him as well. Strasbourg are, I think, ninth in the table, fourth highest scorers, hmm. no pushovers, and Monaco are in dreadful form. Of they've won one game all season, um, and their tactics have been very higgledy piggledy, lots of injuries, players out of form. So it, it is a massive rebuilding job, and the expectation is that because there is quality there, that they will just you know move away from danger and very quickly be chasing down the European places. But there are lots of things in the Thierry Henry managerial entrain. How can pre- is the middle of league? Uh, is it the sort of league where you could put together a ring, a string of results, and suddenly find yourselves in yeah, UEFA league? Completely. The only real gap in that table is the gap between PSG and second place, okay. and it's a gap that will only get bigger over the course of the season. But right. it is entirely conceivable that within a month, say, Monaco could be in the middle of the top half and looking at the European places. Right. The gap between PSG and second place almost as big as the gap between Cavani. And his fellow forwards. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Has there been any fallout to that L'Equipe expose of the fact that they never pass in the ball, poor chap? I mean, PSG's fans feel unfairly targeted by L'Equipe because they are the biggest club in France and they are having an incredible season if we put that result at Anfield to one side. The feeling from PSG's fans is that L'Equipe are always picking on PSG and because they're having such a successful season, it's all nitpicking. But at the same time, there's clearly a disconnect between Neymar and Mbappe, who get on really well, who really clearly love playing together, and Cavani, who's just a very different sort of player and a very different sort of bloke. And when PSG played Lyon in their last game, uh, they had a man sent off quite early on and Cavani was hooked and Mbappe and Neymar went up front together. Mbappe scores four goals for the first time in his career. Him and Neymar are dovetailing beautifully. There's this real sort of joie de vivre about PSG's football. And you don't really get that when Cavani is involved. Three's company, eh? A little bit, yeah. yeah. And that was the, the front page of L'Equipe a couple of days later was Ménage à deux. Oh. And it was a picture of Mbappe and Neymar doing a little dance after one of the goals they scored against Lyon. And Cavani just sort of stalking past them. I think it might have been a bit of a photo montage job. Right. But, uh, yeah. We don't need to translate that, that though, do Certainly we? Don't. Oh, Certainly okay. don't. All right. Well, Tom, that's exciting. Who are they playing this weekend? PSG? PSG are at home to Amiens. Right. Ganso's Amiens. Okay. Ganso, who has two assists already in his fledgling league and career, although the last one of those um, in their win against Dijon last week was a square five-yard pass to Salman Godos. Iranian midfielder who spanked it into the top corner from about 35 yards. I remember so Ganso from years ago. Where's he been all this time? Because he was talked up. It was him and Neymar were the mm, two big names. Yeah, yeah. Out. They were big the pals. He was, in, um, he was in Spain for a bit, I was think. Um, but yeah, he's clearly lost his way. And a, a huge coup for Amiens, who helped to rehabilitate Gael Kakuta right. last season. So it's become a sort of home for, for stray number 10s who've kind of you know forgotten how to play football. Nice. 
Very nice. MLS, home for various strays of sundry different types. Uh, currently, of course, Wayne Rooney's home with DC United, who are occupying the final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. It's the penultimate round of games in the regular season coming up this weekend. Did you see Wayne's midweek free kick? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, good. So anyway, yeah, that's it's been, it's been brilliant. He's uh, set to make the playoffs. Just on the wrong side of that dotted line over in the Western Conference are LA Galaxy, Zlatan's LA, LA Galaxy. They they could miss out. It does sound exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's nice to see Wayne Rooney enjoying his football again and like scoring great goals. And I mean, obviously there is an asterisk there because it's you know only the MLS. But I think there was a feeling when he left Everton that that was him into sort of pre-retirement, and perhaps we wouldn't hear that much about him. But every now and again, a video pops up on Twitter of him doing something fantastic, and you're mm. suddenly reminded of you know the the Wayne Rooney of almost of his first Everton days. Yeah. You know, the guy setting the tempo for his team, covering loads of ground, scoring goals from thirty yards, and it's, you know, it's good to see him having fun. All right, some big clashes coming up over the the weekend then all all over the place possibly the biggest of all though steampunk v basingstoke bodgers v team tombridge on the great model railway challenge the tv show you didn't know you needed in your life according to radio one breakfast show host uh, greg james only this morning he was uh, wax eloquent about that it's available on catch up duncan any clues as to who wins i literally can't remember okay I uh, tell you who wins railway modelling. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that is the that's what I was hoping to be honest. Back to the Premier League. Derby's galore. We got West Ham Spurs, Bournemouth Saints. Two teams that both begin with the letter W, so that counts. And neighbours down the bottom end of the table. Cardiff Fulham where do you want to start should we start with your lot Watford and their trip to Wolves Emma yes that's going to be a difficult afternoon I right. I, I think um, well, the last time you were on you were telling us all about the Hornets excellent start I, yeah I think I jinxed it by coming in here and going on about it right because since then it's one of those what's what's going on at Watford well, what is people going are on? trying to uh, right we have indeed <laughs> taken one point from 12 in the last segment um, of the Premier League but Saying that, it was a loss to Arsenal, who just Mm -hmm. keep winning. It was a loss to Manchester United, who Jose got it right that day, picked a very, very physical team that was able to bully the likes of Troy Deeney and Andre Gray, um, which kept them quiet that day. Took a point at Fulham, which at the time seemed okay. Then, of course, went into the break, having been thumped by Bournemouth. Um, Not the kind of result you want as you go into an international break. Um, But it was a difficult afternoon. I think Javi Gracia hasn't really change the Watford team too much um, but since the start of the season. I think an element was they got a bit found out, a bit predictable. Okay. Because it's um, curious because that's the thing that Nuno Espirito Santo does though. Of yeah. Course, so. um, I, I just think it might be a bit of a struggle going two balls as well. Um, it looks like Watford will have a bit of a new look back line. Christian Cabasele is suspended as mm. is Jose Holibas. Uh, he's got a fifth yellow card. Looks to be going for another record again this season. So... You're not optimistic? No, I'll be honest. And Wolves have started so well that, you know, they're a formidable attacking force. Um, I think it could be a tough afternoon for Watford. Uh, and then it does mean that they face Huddersfield the week after and suddenly might be in need of the points. So it's funny how things can change. Yeah. Um, still up in, what, 13? Yeah. No, oh, sorry. Wat- Watford in ninth. They're, ninth, sorry, yeah, on by 13 By no points. means in any danger. And it was interesting. I was at the training ground yesterday and uh, they were talking about this fixture and the next few to come. And um, for the first time, usually at this this stage of the season, the conversations are, 
are we doing enough to stay up this year? But actually the conversations were, if we want to keep in the top 10, they're going to have to win these next few matches. So I think that's where there's been a subtle shift and mm-hmm. it's, it's a positive shift, but it's true. They've, they've got a, in inverted commas, easier, winnable run of games now before the next break. And uh, I think if Watford wants to stay in and around the, the top half of the table and even that sort of top third, they're going to have to pick up the points, starting at Wolves. Isn't it amazing how in and around is just kind of wormed its way into all of our brains. I, I cannot help but use it. Wouldn't it be great to have coined, you know, it's not a neologism because it's, it's, it's a phrase, but that, is that Andy Townsend? Yeah, Andy Cameron? Townsend, yeah. And now people use it in all walks of life. Yeah. In, in the around. Kalahari Desert, there are tribes wandering around where's saying, the tomato- well, where's, where's the water? It's in and around that bush over yeah. there. Where's the tomato ketchup? It's in and around the fridge. <laughs> it's quite a handy phrase when you're sort of like hedging your bets about something because you're not saying it's it's going to be in there. It's in and around, in and around yeah. the top four. Which I mean, what does that mean? You know, nobody it knows. Means realistically, we'll stick around ninth, but it just sounds a bit uh, better yeah, than mid table. It sounds a bit more glamorous. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway, we salute you, Andy Townsend. Uh, Carlos Vega says, which teams are currently overperforming in the Premier League brackets and will soon start to collapse? Looking down your tables, panel. Who do you think? Could it be plucky Southern Funsters Bournemouth who have that exciting clash with Saints? It could be, um, but the underlying numbers are, are pretty good for Bournemouth. Are they? The, the, going forward. What about Arsenal then? Because they always say the opposite. Yeah, well, Arsenal definitely have overperformed this season. Um, probably, you know, four or five points better than you'd expect. Um, so that could happen, but, you know, again, these things, if you've got players like Lacazette and Aubameyang in good form, then you can, you know, you can defeat the numbers. But, I mean, Bournemouth have been good. I don't know how long they can prolong it, but I think they're having what I would call fourth season syndrome, which is when a team comes up and it's kind of everything about them reaches their, their peak goodness in the fourth season. We saw it with Swansea, their best season was their fourth season. Oh. And they started to fade away. It also applies to TV shows. I think the Wire fourth season was the best. Um, so I think Bournemouth can have a really good year. But fourth I season was the, uh, the school season. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Eddie, you could imagine Eddie Howe teaching in a Baltimore school, perhaps. Yeah. I'm not your yo. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. yeah, I think Bournemouth are going to sort of be in and around the top six or top eight for <laughs> most of the season. Um, it's true. It pains me to say it yeah. as someone associated with Watford. We've got a little bit of a rivalry having been promoted together uh-huh. and uh, the way they, they nicked it on the they last on the last yeah. day. We won't go there. But they, ju- they just look so well organised against Watford that day. Yeah. yeah, Just going forward, Josh King especially, Gallon Wilson and that young um, Brooks. David Brooks, yeah, yeah, two goals in two games. He's only 20, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. looked very good. Ryan Ooh. Fraser as well. What about the new fellow who they finally managed to get into the side? Is it Jefferson Lerner? Mm. Yeah, he looked... Uh, there's there's one bit where Troy Deeney comes screaming towards him and he just kind of... He just does a little dummy and, and Troy Deeney continues onwards and the ball's heading up the other end yeah. of the field. Saying that, we caught Nathan Ake towards the end. Obviously, he played at Watford a couple of years ago. Um and he was very quick to point out they got thumped by Burnley only a couple of weeks before in very similar kind of circumstances and that seems to have been forgotten about already. Mm. So I think Watford have a good chance here to do the same. To Wolves? Yeah. Right. Bournemouth, meanwhile, of course, are taking on Saints fresh from that 4-0 win over the Hornets. Saints, by contrast, have lost their last three. Oh, here's a stat for anyone who likes that kind of thing. Saints, Duncan, do you know this? Is it the shots? Yes. Yes. Go on then. So, if we're talking about overperforming teams, 
perhaps Southampton, a bit like last season as well, mm-hmm. are massively underperforming. They've actually had the third most shots of any team yep. in the Premier League this season. Um, and yet, They've had uh, more shots than Spurs and Liverpool, but only scored six goals. Whereas their opponents this weekend, Bournemouth, have had fewer shots than Spurs and Liverpool, but scored more goals than both of them. Exactly. This is where you need some sort of model that will tell you uh, quality of the chance rather than just a, a raw number. But the only model I need is this Premier League table right ahead of me, which says that Southampton are all the way down in 16th place, barely two points above the drop, while Bournemouth are two points from uh, the top four. Wow. Extraordinary. Have you got a team you think is uh, overperforming, Tom? Um, Cardiff? <laughs> yeah, probably, probably not Cardiff. Um, I mean, there's you, you know, looking see. looking at the top half of the table, there aren't any teams that leap out at me as being in in false positions. I mean, there's there's a feeling that Arsenal's form and league position is is not a true reflection of the quality of their performances. But I think there's there's such positivity around Arsenal now. I mean, we saw that you know that fantastic win at Fulham before the international break. I mean, that incredible goal that Aaron Ramsey scored mm. 39 seconds after coming on, whatever it was. And the fans singing, "We've got our Arsenal back," and I think if you'd, you know, if you'd said to an Arsenal fan after their first two games of the season when they lost against City and Chelsea that six games later people will be singing about the old Arsenal being back to their best and Lacazette and Aubameyang will be banging the goals in, they might have struggled to believe you. Um, and so I, you know, okay, maybe I, maybe Arsenal aren't playing quite as well as as their position in the table suggests. Yeah, so but I, I think that's sort of the the atmosphere around the club is, is such a positive because right. it became so damaging the last two years under Wenger, just that the apathy that crept in. And so, you know, whether it's justified or not, there is excitement around Arsenal. And I think that in, in you know, in the context of the problems they've had hmm. recently is really, really important. When you talk to Arsenal fans, the ones I've spoken to will admit as well that they've not necessarily done it against any of the teams in and around them. Uh, they've they've lost to Chelsea, haven't they? They've lost to City. Mm-hmm. The first two games. And yeah. the, the other games they've won have been around against lower teams. And again, not always so convincing. I know they absolutely thrashed Fulham before the break, but... Other than that, it's not been hugely convincing across the board. So I, th- I think and November again is fairly kind, but then December looks to be a bit harder. So I, I think it'll be more towards Christmas time we see what's really going on, going on at Arsenal. And even in the Vangerian pomp, Arsenal always sort of did really well in October, November and then fell away in December, January a bit when the, right. the pitch has got heavy. Arsenal will be facing Leicester on Monday night, who they never lose at home to. Cardiff, meanwhile, I mentioned them. Let's Let's shoehorn them in here because they've got that huge game with uh, Fulham Fulham who are just above the drop at the moment Cardiff very much bottom of the table five defeats in a row Fulham have got the worst record away from home in the Premier League what's going to happen here? It's, it's a proper relegation six-pointer, isn't it? I mean, we keep saying that Cardiff have to win these games and the games keep coming and going and they're not winning them. Um, I mean, I, Cardiff were, did quite well at Tottenham. I mean, it was a very scratchy Spurs performance. They got the early goal, but then didn't really look like adding to it. Cardiff had six shots on target, which for a, a team who are really struggling for goals at the bottom of the table against a Champions League side like Tottenham is, is decent going. That means um, nothing without the XG, though. What was the XG? Well, well, one of those shots was after one second from the kickoff, so it is the fastest shot of the Premier League season. But I've got so, I've got so much time for that. After one second, possibly ever actually, yeah. Yeah, after one second, how did that happen? Well, so, they basically from the kickoff just tried to score. Okay, 
which is a sign that you know yeah. that there is still great desire to get forward and, and score go. goals there. And and Fulham, yeah, I think I think I'm right in saying they're the only Premier League team yet to keep a clean sheet, and that's probably a reflection of the fact that um, Slavica Jakanovic has picked a different defence mm. in every game they've played. And you know, I guess the hope, uh, if you're a Fulham fan, is that they have used the international break to to come up with with a way of playing defensively. Uh, just on that, um, what Tom was saying. I think the problems are in the back line. We all saw that when they were on television, heavily defeated by Arsenal. A number of different reasons. I just don't think he's found the winning formula and also injuries has been a huge part of it. They seem to have switched to a five at the back, which actually worked for half of the game against Arsenal until... I think it was quite harsh. He took Tim Ream off after making a mistake in one of the goals and then it all seemed to kind of fall apart. Uh, The main thing with Fulham, I would say, is Ryan Sessegnon has just not hit the ground running as people might have expected him to. Uh, Joe Bryan, the left-back, is injured and because of that, I think Sess is having to play perhaps not in such an attacking role as you see him really flourishing. But this is how Fulham got promoted. They scored a lot of goals but they did let a lot of goals mm. in. It wasn't really until the second half of the season that they started to um, become a bit more solid at the back. But I just think at the moment they're getting a bit found out in the Premier League uh, because you, you just can't get away with it like you can in the Championship. And they're obviously just not scoring as many goals either. Um, so until that back line settles, which, as you said, it might do now. They've had some time over the international break mm. until they find the formula. Um, I but- mean, historically... Teams who can't defend don't stay up in the Premier League. Only yeah. two teams have ever had the worst defence and not gone down. One of whom actually was Fulham in the mid two thousands. But um, who was the other, Duncan? It was West Ham last season. Was it joint worst? Yeah. Right. So do, I mean, West Ham would be an example of a team who were were really struggling defensively at the start of this campaign until an international break allowed them the chance to kind of regroup a bit, and then they've done really well. So who knows? I mean, do you see if, in the Fulham squad the elements that? Jokanovic could use to turn this around? Yeah, they've got the tools to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Mitrovic has proven already that he is a Premier League goal scorer. They signed the likes of Seri um, in the summer, who hasn't he hasn't quite hit the ground running, but there's no doubting the quality of him as a player. I think um, when you get certain players that do come back from injury and like the likes of Joe Bryan that will allow Ryan Sessegnon to play higher up the pitch in a more free role, you'll see him benefiting from that. Um, I think Cyrus Christie's filling in at right back mm-hmm. at the moment, isn't he? Because there's another injury there so I think Fulham will get it together and they've got plenty of time they usually I think usually say by about 10 matches or so don't you get an idea of where teams are going to be so Fulham have got another couple of games here to pick up some points and a good chance against Neil Warnock's Cardiff by the way Neil Warnock doesn't seem to care if they're coming or going it's his quote before they took on I think it was um Spurs yeah and he, he was saying how uh, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if he got sacked, could go away with his wife for a few weeks, have a nice relax, have a good Christmas. And that's just looking at the downside. And the weird thing is... The, the, Warnock and a Warnock. And it, it, the weird thing is the fans don't seem to care either. Uh, I think they just still look at it as he's done so well under the circumstances under Vincent Tan as, as the owner. It's almost like he's got a free pass. But very, you, you wonder where that's going to run out. It's very reminiscent of Barnsley when they came up. No one expected them to come up. They didn't do particularly well when they were up. And they just sort of enjoyed the experience and went down. And everyone said, cheers, bye. And it feels like that with Cardiff <laughs> yeah. this year. So down the bottom of the table, Palace could be finding themselves down there actually very soon. They're, they're away at Everton, Duncan. Mm. I think with Palace, we're kind of in a weird situation where this time last year, Hodgson had just come in, they had had a terrible start, but all the numbers were sort of suggesting that they were better than that and that they would recover and finish in mid-table, which is what happened. This year, 
Um, it's sort of gone on the radar a bit, but they're actually not playing very well. Hodgson isn't really using people like Max Mayer. Um, and their XG is actually lower now than it was at this point last season. Crikey. Tom. And yeah, Everton, I mean, I think the, the issue with Everton at the start of the season was they had lots of very exciting attacking midfielders and no strikers, um, or at least no strikers who could be relied upon to score goals. Uh, and so what um, Marco Silva has done is he's stopped picking strikers uh, when they played Leicester before the international break they had a front four of Theo Walcott Gilfie Sigurdsson Bernard who made his Premier League debut and Richarlison was basically given the responsibility of leading the line he scores the opener teed up by Bernard uh, and then Gilfie Sigurdsson scores that absolute cracking goal little mm. Cruyff turn bends it top left from about 30 yards and I think that has I think there's a blueprint now for Everton you know, going forward that they don't necessarily need to play with a centre forward and they might get more out of those attacking midfield players if they're just allowed to get on with it you know, on their own. Very nice. OK, Newcastle, meanwhile, taking on Brighton, which is a big game always for Chris Hooton, the team that uh, ruthlessly sacked him. Uh, Pascal Cruz could return after missing the West Ham win, which, kind of turned, which ended a, a rotten run of results for... Brighton, as I recall. Newcastle still very much in their slump without a win this season. And one or two stories this week saying that Mike Ashley might be heading towards ending his relationship with Rafa Benitez, which I imagine would be worrying for the Newcastle fans. But anyway, delicate situation, delicate times up at, at St James's Park. Tom, you've got a stat about Brighton. Yeah, it's not as impressive as Duncan's stats, but Glenn Murray is one goal away from a century of Brighton goals after getting the winner... He's in and around a century. He's in and around a century of goals. I see. Excellent. Here's one more stat. Okay. Seven of Albion's starting lineup from their 2016 visit could also feature again on Saturday afternoon. All right. Continuity. But saying that, their record in the meantime against Newcastle isn't very good. So I'm not sure it's a good thing that they keep playing the same players. I hear you. Right, here's a stat. We've only got five minutes left before we get kicked <laughs> out of this uh, studio. So let's move straight away then to. Uh, the huge fixture awaiting us mid-afternoon on Saturday as West Ham host Spurs. Remind me, if you will, how Spurs are, because they had a brilliant start and then the wheels came off. And, and, and now, what's the position? It's hard to tell, isn't it, with Spurs? Um, they'll probably win 1-0 and we won't know any different. Really? Do you think they'll... Do you think... I think they'll win. I mean, West Ham haven't won consecutive games at, Lon- at the London Stadium or London Stadium for quite a long time. In fact, since Zaza Gabor died back in 2016, so it's been a while. Um, right. I don't think those two things are connected in any right. way. Uh, OK. And Spurs have got all sorts of injuries, I have to tell you, Duncan. Batongan, Deli Ali, is he out? Danny Rose, Eriksen, of course. Wanyama, Dembele. I mean, I'm just saying, it's a, it's a worrying, worrying list of names, isn't it? But yeah, Harry- and they weren't they weren't particularly impressive against Cardiff, as we said earlier. Mauricio Pochettino said afterwards that Tottenham need to improve a lot. But then, do you worry about the poor quality of their football, or do you look at the fact that they are fifth in the table, two points off the top, without having played all that well, and say, well, actually, oh, yeah, much better true. to be there t- than, than further down the table? That is true. They've got a tough run of games coming up. This. Then away to PSV, which they really need to get something from, given their uh, early results in the Champions League. Then they got Man City. Yikes. Hammers, meanwhile, had that four-game unbeaten run featuring all sorts of good results, Chelsea, Man United, etc. But that ended with defeat at Brighton. Although, as we mentioned, last time they had an international break, they came back looking uh, excellent. So uh, what do you think, Emma? Yeah, it seems to have slotted into place at West Ham, hasn't it? They had that awful start and then they got it together after the last international break and they've only had more time since to continue doing what they're doing. And also, we're talking about teams that are perhaps overperforming 
and perhaps their table position is a bit misleading. Spurs could be that. And like we all said, right. I think it's now that they're going to get found out with all these injuries and, and the fixtures that they've um, got coming up. Um, so I'd say if there's a good time to play Spurs for West Ham, it's now. Right. Well, that's a big call. We'll find out anyway. That's Saturday afternoon then. Let's, uh, before we wrap up today's edition of the Totally Football Show, get the odds on some of the weekend fixtures, courtesy of Paddy Power with producer Ben. Thanks, Jim, but I've got Lee Price on the line from Paddy Power. Lee, it's the return of the Premier League this weekend, which is tremendously exciting, and the biggest fixture is probably Chelsea versus Man United. Um, give us the overall on this one, and uh, is there a feeling that this could be Mourinho's last stand? Yeah, an interesting one, potentially Mourinho's last stand. We go just 8-1 to one that he leaves his position before the Juve game after the Chelsea match, which is quite a short price. In fact, it's only twice as likely that United win this game at 4-1. to one. Chelsea are 8-13 to 13 favourites, 11-4 to four the draw. Uh, as for goal scorers, the top six bets are all Chelsea players. Hazard leading the way on 7-2, of course, before you get to Lukaku at 13-2. And you've got a money-back special running on this one too. We do have a money-back special and it ties into what we just mentioned there. Money back as a free bet if Hazard scores. Uh, selected markets only, max free bet £10, T&Cs apply and they are available online to view. All right, let's move on to Liverpool and City at the top of the table. They've both got pretty easy looking fixtures. What are the odds on them both getting four or more goals? Interesting. This sounds like one of those special Ben bets you've done from time to time. Uh, Liverpool are 4-1 to one to score four more goals, which I would have said was a short price. But then listen to this from Man City. They're just 5-4 to four score four or more goals this weekend. Incredible. Together, for a double, you can get 10-1 to that both Liverpool and City score four or more goals. Tasty. Wolves doing fantastically well this season, of course. Uh, the most consistent lineup in the Premier League. Uh, will Nuno name the same team again for what I believe will be the ninth successive game? An unusual one. Not one we've actually ever bet on before. So this is a Paddy Power first. But I asked the traders for a price for Wolves to name the same 11 for their next match as their previous Premier League tie. And the price was one to three. So odds on, uh, but not as short as it could have been, perhaps. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. On Monday, we're joined by Daniel Story, Michael Cox, Ian Irving. Hey, and Raphael Honigstein's back as well. A bit busy. Um, what have you got lined up for this weekend, Emma? The Wolves? I'm in Birmingham, but I'm at Aston Villa, huh. where there's been an awful lot going on this week. Oh boy, there has. I know there. the death so you're of Doug there at the big debut. Yeah. Of whatever their managers called, and John Terry. Yeah, Dean Smith, Smith. Richard yeah. O'Kelly, and John Terry. Ooh. The new tripod. Yes. There we go. Excellent. Who are they playing? Swansea. Good. What have you got lined up, Duncan? I'll just be revelling in the return of the English Premier League. Good to know, Tom. I'll also be revelling in the return of the Barclays. Uh, and I also need to go to a charity shop to get rid of um, a duvet that I bought by accident. If anyone needs a super king-sized duvet yep. with duvet cover okay. and what a, a super king-sized... I think it's about, I don't know, like a seven or eight sort of medium right. tog. But I, I thought... This is actually not in my current abode, but yeah. I, I previously thought that I owned a super king-sized bed and I, and I didn't. 
That's uh, so disappointing, I bought isn't it? all the kit and now oh, I have no use but for it. But surely too much duvet is yeah. better than not enough. Better than yeah, but it looked like aesthetically having a big droopy duvet hanging off the size yeah. of a smaller bed is just... Tom's uh, right. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're it. saying. Thread count available on request, I, I imagine. Yes, yeah, so if anyone needs Twitter a super king-size you know, bed set up, drop me a line. Right, equally, I've got a piano that I really need to <laughs> shift. If you want a piano, I can give you all the details. It's good nick and everything. I keep calling piano shops. They say, no, we've got loads of these pianos. I need to buy a broom. Oh. I bought one this week and then it didn't get delivered. So That's, That is disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I hope you have a great time this weekend. We'll be back on Monday. Look forward to seeing you then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And make sure you check out our other football podcasts, the revamped Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker and the brand new Totally Scottish Football Show. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.